This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Oh my God. You maniac! You blew it up! How can we know the time of crisis has arrived? Is the panic heart beating? Or is it only mine? So while on the one hand, I think it's commendable if people want to see the world changed, and I think there is something within catastrophism which is, you know, genuinely something we can identify with, which is, you know, people want to see some fundamental change to society. And I think that's absolutely legitimate and fair. And I think that's actually possible. But catastrophism as a shortcut is not the way to get there. For some reason, perhaps deep in our past, humans easily fixate on catastrophe, whether real or imaginary. Does the nation, the economy, or even civilization need to collapse in order to start anew? Who benefits if we think like that? And would things get better or worse? The producers of the long-running radio program Against the Grain teamed up with others to write an influential, if controversial, book about all that, It was published in 2012 with the title Catastrophism, the Apocalyptic Politics of Collapse and Rebirth. Now, why bring that back? Well, three reasons for me. Some listeners suggest I'm too fixated on collapse at the expense of solutions. Meanwhile, in America, Donald Trump and others in Europe feed on creating public fear. And finally, there are signs more people are afraid something awful is about to happen or already happening behind the scenes. Not to mention the science of rapidly developing climate catastrophe, which is all too real. I've reached out to one of the authors, Eddie Yuen. Eddie teaches in the Urban Studies Department at the San Francisco Art Institute. He is the co-editor of the book Confronting Capitalism, Dispatches from a Global Movement. He's written about popular movements, the politics of right and left, and the role of apocalypse in environmentalism. Along with Sasha Lilly, another author in the book, Eddie has been a radio producer for Against the Grain on KPFA, the Pacifica flagship station in Berkeley and the Bay Area. Eddie Uen, welcome to the public side of the microphone here on Radio EcoShock. Thank you, Alex. Well, why don't we start with a little question that probably has a huge answer, but why did you and your co-authors publish a book on catastrophism? Yeah, well, back in uh, 2012... We were um, having a conversation. We were struck by the fact that the end of the world, um, the concept of apocalypse and catastrophe, was ubiquitous in the popular culture and remains so. And we were interested in the politics of this. What are the politics of being constantly aware and reminded of the end of the world, the fact that it's in you know, popular narratives, films, video games, what have you. We also were, of course, reminded of a famous quote some of your listeners might have heard from Frederick Jameson, which goes, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism, right? And so the idea is, what does this do for the imagination that we're so easily imagined various apocalyptic scenarios, but we, it's much harder to imagine alternatives to the system that's destroying human communities and certainly destroying the planet. So that was, you know, part of, it was an inquiry. We were interested in sort of making a map of different versions of catastrophe and the end of the world, and really especially concerned with the politics of this. But one thing that's clear and when, you know, from the start is we distinguish between 
some catastrophes which are not real, you might say spurious, especially right-wing ones, which are very much ubiquitous in the culture. You know, the stuff that Donald Trump promotes, the Republican Party in general, things about the government taking the guns every four years, they have this one, the gold bug kind of theories, Lou Dobbs's theory of immigrants spreading cholera, all these kinds of things, which bring about fear and panic. The distinction between those, the, the religious ones, which talk about the end of the world, we've had a few of those in recent years, and of course the real catastrophes which are in fact happening, and principally I'm talking about the environmental catastrophes, which are in fact even worse than um, scientists a few years ago were predicting. In fact, this is not something in the future, it's ongoing, and the climate catastrophe is one of these scenarios. So it's absolutely real what's happening, it is catastrophic, and so our question is really what politics emerge from these kinds of catastrophes what politics are available to our imaginations. And so we go from there, you might say. So in an earlier phone conversation, I shared with you the dirty little secret known by anyone in progressive radio. We get way more listeners when we talk about collapse and other awful things than when we do interviews about solutions. What does that tell us? I think for one thing, I mean, it tells us that we are living in catastrophic times. I mean, it's on people's minds, whether politicized or not. There are so many different versions of the end of the world. And again, I just point to the zombie narratives. Um, David McNally has a a very um, interesting chapter in the book on interpreting the whole zombie phenomenon. So I think it's just very familiar to us, right? It's been, I think, really for several decades now in popular culture, end of the world scenarios are, are familiar. It's almost comfortable to talk about this. And of course, it is morbidly fascinating to talk about some of the horrific details. And particularly around the environmental issue, I would say that part of the politics of talking about catastrophe, if we believe in fact that a catastrophe is upon us, is you want to kind of scare people straight, as the old war on drugs slogan would have it. If only people knew more about just how bad things are, maybe they would do something about it. And I think that there's certainly some merit to this. Now, obviously, if the catastrophe you're talking about doesn't itself have merit, such as Harold Camping's end of the world scenario, I think that was three years ago, you know, a fundamentalist minister predicting the end of the world, then all that work of educating people about the impending doomsday um, will go for naught, although there seems to be very little accountability for such prophecies. But in the case of the real catastrophe, and I would say, you know, climate change, biodiversity collapse, ocean acidification. This is the real phenomenon that's happening to the planet right now. I think there is a kind of sensibility that many environmentalists and scientists share, and I certainly share this myself very often, that if only people simply knew the facts and knew more about it, that they would do the right thing. And I think this is where we get into some interesting political questions, because we have to consider historically, when presented with terrible information and catastrophic knowledge, do people necessarily do what, in this case, a scientist thinks should be done, which I believe is to suggest a complete retooling of the entire economic system, some way or another? There's a real impulse for those of us, and I'm sure most of your listeners, who know just about how bad the climate crisis is, to want to talk about this, and I think it's very important that we do so. But we also have to talk about what are the impacts of this knowledge, this information, and in particular, the fact that outside of the United States, where you still have climate denialism, and there's a few places where you have you know, a climate denier movement, which is, of course, sponsored from the top, you know, top levels of think tanks, the petrochemical industry, and so on. But in most places in the world, that's really a diminishing factor. So we have to consider what are the solutions to the catastrophe that are being offered to us from the same people that brought us the crisis in the first place. That is the usual elites, business and government elites. 
And there is, is I think, where we find it's interesting that, that we, we see that the solutions that are being offered, for the most part, to my view, and I think many of your listeners will, will, would agree, are not going to really solve the problem. And we can talk about what those solutions are. So in other words, simply knowledge of the problem is a stage, you might say, in doing something about it. But at a certain point, we have to um, really talk about the politics of where this is going. So to answer your question, though, I think that, yes, people are interested in talking about the catastrophe because... Basically because it's interesting, and sometimes the solutions, especially the technical solutions, they seem, to go back to the quote from the beginning, they seem unattainable given the existing political system, and therefore, you know, it's a little bit disheartening to even talk about it. Well, I think, sure, Eddie, people are frustrated, and they don't see a way out of this trap at this time, or a way that they're willing to accept, and so one of the basic ideas of catastrophism is not that just things may collapse, but that they should fall apart. So we can rebuild things like the economy or the social system or maybe an emissions-free world. What could go wrong with that idea, Eddie? Yeah. Now, with different kinds of catastrophe over the years, there has been um, an idea that maybe the worse things get, the better they are in the long run, right? And so Sasha Lilly, in her um, chapter in the book, talks about this from a left-wing perspective. That is, historically, some left-wing movements have made the case that, say, you have a reactionary political movement on the horizon, or that capitalism is facing you know, some signs of, of structural crisis that takes the form of unemployment, for example, or even war. There has been a tendency on the left to say, well, maybe that's good. Let's enhance the contradictions, you know, bring it on, and then this will make clear to the masses that the system is broken and they will rise up. And so to make a long story short, you know, this has not always worked out the way it's been planned. Often when there's mass unemployment and economic crisis, the political elites are able to direct the anger about that away from the people in power towards scapegoats. And, of course, America, we're seeing an example of this right now with the Trump phenomenon, right? Why would working-class white people who have been downwardly mobile for some decades support the billionaire who is blaming migrants and other spurious candidates as opposed to the system itself? Well, I mean, this is a familiar story. So the most egregious example that Sasha mentions, of course, in the book is a slogan of the Communist Party in Germany in the 1930s with regard to the ascendancy of the Nazi Party. They basically argued, well, maybe that's better than having the Social Democrats you know, win again, who aren't going to do anything. And the slogan was, after Hitler, us. Well, I've heard people come up with a version like that, some people on the left even, saying, well, maybe if we had four years of Trump and he dismantles the EPA and... Uh, you know, he brings back the coal companies and, and Miami basically floods and things get really bad. Well, after Trump, then we'll get real climate action. But there's a real problem with accepting somebody who maybe has some fascist tendencies and certainly uh, promotes violence. That's right. And, you know, again, you have to look at each political situation in turn. It is true that in the United States in recent decades, when Republican is in power, you know, some left and liberal publications, you know, radio stations, um, for example, NGOs, environmental groups do see an increase in membership and donations. You do sometimes see greater mobilization on some issues. So, again, it, it, you have to look at the entire picture. However, we really have to balance against what is the damage that could be done, right, by an administration that's avowedly anti-environment. And we're talking about anti-civil liberties and against freedom of the press. That's sort of the parameter, the, the, the area in which social movements can operate. And another thing to throw in the mixture, of course, if you're talking about American politics and politics in many places in the world, is also liberal catastrophism, right, which is that liberals, uh, and taking the establishment, you know, the Democratic Party, 
Hillary Clinton supporters, they really don't have much to say in defense of Hillary Clinton, but they can say, well, she's not Trump, right? And this, of course, is the lesser evil politics, which stampedes people into voting every four years for a candidate that doesn't represent meaningful change with regard to the environment, with regard to the killing of people of color by the police, with regard to many, many issues, wars, certainly. That's a whole other dynamic. That is, this lesser evil politics is going on as well. But yeah, I do think that the worse the better, we should be very cautious with this, these kinds of politics. And in particular, with, with the climate crisis and environmental crisis, there really doesn't seem to be a lot of time uh, left for the planet to really make some significant changes in the entire system. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock, and I'm Alex Smith. My guest is Eddie Wen, and we are talking about catastrophism on both the right and the left. He's a radio producer, he's an author, and he teaches. We've got a good voice on this. Now, Eddie, I spent a couple of years reading about the Holocaust, and along the way, I was alarmed to discover how environmentally aware Hitler and some of his henchmen were, the German philosopher Martin Heidegger, a confirmed Nazi, spoke about a river's right to exist. The Nazis attempted to bring back former European animals, uh, perhaps an attempt at rewilding, and Hitler was a vegetarian. It's a long list. Talk to us about the potential for ecofascism, maybe in America and then elsewhere. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, and it's, you know, I think people are always shocked when they discover some of these tendencies. You know, there's an assumption that environmentalism, green politics in general, are, are always sort of on the left, right? That they're, they're complementary to feminism, to anti-capitalist politics, anarchism perhaps, socialism. And there is a lot of um, environmental politics we can now call environmental green politics that do share that lineage. However, there are other environmental strains of politics that come from a very different trajectory, you know, in the United States, it comes from elite conservation. You know, Teddy Roosevelt, you know, who's an imperialist. You have this whole masculinist project of socializing young men into the wilderness, big game hunting. You have various, really, a range of environmental politics. The green wing of the Nazi party is an extreme um, version of this. And so thinking about, you know, 21st century environmental politics and confronting the climate crisis, I think some scholars are raising the issue of, well, down the line, could we see something like ecofascism, right? In other words, a kind of wedding of the right-wing politics that we're seeing, say, with Trump, that greenwashes itself, that basically says not only do we have to seal the borders for the real Americans, you know, in other words, a white supremacist kind of project, we also have to do this in the name of the environment. And we've seen versions of this in the past. We saw efforts by anti-immigration groups to infiltrate the Sierra Club some years ago, right, trying to blame illegal immigrants for environmental destruction. So I think we're starting to see this. I think it'll happen in Europe first with some of the new populist parties and racist parties in Europe taking this line of thought. And in particular, climate scientists are warning about the rising sea levels and the climate refugees, right? And this is already starting, by the way. You know, I mean, it's not just the Pacific Islands. You know, Bangladesh will be sort of the case in point. But many places, either through rising sea levels or crop failure, there's going to be a further displacement of vulnerable peoples in the world. And we already see what the reaction is in the rich world, and that's Europe, Australia, Japan, United States, which is sealing borders, right? And it's not just the far right now. This has become a mainstream position. So this is, I think, the immediate issue that we're going to sort of face is this kind of lifeboat ethics based on this idea that whether the poor are to be blamed for the environmental crisis or not, there's no room for them 
and we have to divide the world into the haves and have-nots as it's already been divided. So I think this is a very pressing issue, and we may call it this kind of spaceship Earth model in which the life rafts are pulled up and the existing inequalities are reinforced. We just had a major United Nations conference on environmental refugees and refugees in general. I think this is the headline story that will dominate for years to come. I recall the British scientist and inventor James Lovelock saying a few years ago that Britain, because it was sort of an island somewhat buffered by cooling seas, would become a climate lifeboat. And his plan was that uh, the UK should start building more hospitals and more schools just to be ready for those refugees. But instead, what we've seen is the Brexit vote and a desire by many people to tighten the borders and keep everybody else out. Where's that going? Yeah, so this is, I mean, it's just a really good example of why the environmental movement and the climate movement cannot be separated from movements for global justice and peace in the world. These things all have to be related. What this means from the point of view of environmentalists and scientists is they're going to have to also begin to learn more of the history that social scientists have traditionally been more concerned with about the inequalities of the world and the fact that they are not natural, right? So a big part of the problem is that people think when there's starvation or poverty in Africa, any place in the global south, that it's somehow natural, that people have made bad decisions, rather than seeing it as part of a 500-year history of enclosures and displacement uh, and violence. And so what we're seeing now, I mean, to be on the positive side, is global movements that are putting these perspectives together. That, in other words, are not separating justice, whether it's a call for reparations or a call for um, a debt moratorium, a jubilee on, on debt, to stop the redistribution of wealth from the poorest nations to the richest, but in fact reversing that. We're seeing this movement around the world now. And in fact, in the United States, the Standing Rock struggle in North Dakota um, against the Dakota Access Pipeline is an incredible example of this. So climate movements and social justice movements um, have to converge, and thankfully this is already happening. This is not an idea that we have to promote. If you just look around, it's there. It's all over the world, Latin America, Peru, Bolivia, battles against dams, um, against displacement. So there is a lot going on, but I do think on the other side of it, absolutely in the absence of those movements and that perspective, Simply learning about the climate crisis um, without a historical background, many people in the rich world will be susceptible to kinds of eco-populist arguments of the right wing, suggesting that, well, it's unfortunate, but there's simply not enough to go around. There's scarcity. There's too many people. They're overpopulated over there. Those kinds of arguments are going to come back with a vengeance. And so it's going to be a real major battle of ideas. And this is why, again, to go back to the point about catastrophism, simple awareness of catastrophe is insufficient. There has to be, I think, an understanding of the history of it and the way that it's playing out in the world in very unequal ways. And the way that it's playing out, you've talked about three general patterns of solutions to giant problems like climate change. Why don't we start with the technocratic idea? Sure, yeah. In the absence of a more thorough debate and the intervention of social movements, you know, that are outside of the, of the political establishment, you're going to see this crisis, like every other crisis, being filtered through the usual kinds of solutions. Um, one of the solutions is simply a technical one, that every problem that the world system encounters or that capitalism produces can be solved through a simple technical, you know, fix. Um, and the technical fix then will mean that uh, the deeper issues creating the problem in the first place don't have to be addressed. 
And so, you know, again, I think the maximum example of this is geoengineering. And, you know, I think you probably had folks on your show, we will in the future, talking about this and some of the calamitous outcomes that may occur from some of these proposals. But suffice to say that it it feels something like a spider that swallowed a fly kind of scenario, right, that you have uh, a system of a domination of nature, making nature adhere to what the particular mode of production wants it to be, finding problems with that, uh, and then basically trying to modify it even further. You know, I think some of the technical solutions around carbon sequestering, around certainly renewable energies, are, I think, relatively benign. I think that these are things that should be advanced, but I think that they're also insufficient, right, without addressing the, the social inequalities, the massive overconsumption and overproduction, especially in the global north, that's fueling the crisis. Those have to be addressed. You can't simply say, well, we can just have more efficient, clean coal, you know, more battery-powered vehicles, and not actually have to change the way of life and the basic approach towards nature, which is looking at nature as a sink and a sewer to be um, disposed of and to be dumped on. So, again, I think the technical fixes are dangerous on several levels, in this case philosophically, but I think some of them could actually be dangerous um, (laughs) in a deeper level, and I'm thinking, of course, about some of the geoengineering schemes. Well, we already talked about eco-fascism and eco-nationalism, but it seems like, and you mentioned this to me, the only solution acceptable to the New York Times is a neoliberal approach. Eddie UN, how do media power brokers see it, and why do they disagree even with the Pope? Yeah, okay. So the Pope's encyclical was a surprise to many because it felt like he really listened to the climate justice movements in the world and, and put some of their ideas into the encyclical. And what, amongst those ideas is what we've been talking about, that you have to deal with the injustice, you have to deal with a, really a 500-year history. You can't you know, simply uh, blame the poor for making bad decisions you know, that have led to their plight. And what's interesting is when this happened, I don't have the exact article in front of me, the New York Times had, a, a, had an article basically saying this is outrageous that the Pope would say this because any serious economist knows that the only possible solutions are market-based. And it was kind of a pure expression of what Naomi Klein and many scholars have, have been t- talking about for years about the hegemony, the dominance of neoliberal economics. In other words, it's impossible to, you're not permitted to think outside of the box and say, wait a minute, isn't there a way we can think about this crisis that actually challenges markets and more fundamentally challenges the commodification of nature? Because this is really what the neoliberal solutions are talking about. And what do I mean by that? If you look at the climate conferences and the big climate talks, the, the consensus view that is promoted as, as, a, as a solution to the problems is that maybe the atmosphere and carbon and water and other resources are undervalued. And so we have to use markets in order to value them better. And if we can make them fungible, that is, if we make them transferable and equivalent and put a price tag on them, then they can effectively be derivatives, as we saw with the derivatives in the housing market and other things. We see how that ends up. You know, that basically we can start trading atmosphere, carbon credits, perhaps fresh water on markets. And so this is where we get carbon markets. We get cap and trade. I mean, cap is great. We should definitely cap carbon. What's this trading? What does this mean to trade carbon credits? Well, it effectively means dumping the carbon in the countries that are underpolluted, as Lawrence Summers, the Harvard economist, once said in the leaked email, that you know, the global south may be underpolluted, and that's maybe the place that should be able to accept more pollution, and maybe they should accept more of the consequences of climate change, which, of course, are, are, are going to be global. 
So these kinds of solutions are still what's really on offer, but we're still in this box, and it's very hard to think out of it. And, you know, the way I would you know, really phrase it, it's, it's catastrophic solutions to catastrophe, right? It's doubling down on the economic logic that brought us to this crisis in the first place. And really, we have to listen to the indigenous people in particular who've been very strong on this, saying, no, we have to actually decommodify fossil fuels, carbon, water, for that matter. We have to keep the oil in the soil and the coal in the hole, as many of the movements are saying in, in South Asia and Latin America. And really, we have to rethink what economy means and what prosperity means and what abundance means. So that, I think, is actually the primary mode of solution that we're going to be facing. Of the three that I mentioned, technical fixes, sort of this eco-nationalism, you know, drawing up the, the drawbridge, borders against climate refugees. But I think that this one, this neoliberal kinds of solutions, right, that is doubling down on climate capitalism, this is what is really on the table right now. And simply being aware of the facts of the climate crisis doesn't inoculate us from this logic. It's very hard to challenge this logic. And I think, as I said, I mean, it's being done right now from Standing Rock to South Africa to many places in the world. But this is, I think, where the real battle lies. Well, let's go all the way. Why don't we put a market value on our children and start trading them, too? <laughs> there we go. You know, or organs, right? Body parts. Well, that's already happening. Yeah, it has happened, but there's still some prohibitions against some organs, right? <laughs> but, you know, for that matter, human lives, right? I think the analogy about abolition with the abolition of slavery and the abolition of carbon is really apt. You know, there's vested interests that don't want to see carbon being decommodified because this is trillions of dollars of assets, just as the banking industry of the 19th century was deeply invested in slavery because they saw human bodies as assets. So the project of decommodification, of taking something which is being treated now as a commodity as if it was made in a factory and saying, no, this is something which is too important, either for ethical reasons or, in, in this case right now, with methane, carbon, and water for planetary reasons. These cannot be treated as commodities. There are no market-based solutions to this. These things actually have to be protected. And if that means changing the entire system, then so be it. But that is the battle that has to be waged. Radio Ecoshock. Here is more from the Against the Grain radio program on KPFA about the risks of believing in catastrophe as the way out of our deep crisis. Eddie's co-author and radio broadcaster, Sasha Lilly, explains. It's very clear looking around us now during this crisis, looking at Europe, that the kind of chaos produced by an economic crisis often really gives a boost to the right because it's very easy for the right to scapegoat other people. And, uh, and you know, and during crises, people often don't do what we on the left would hope that they do. They don't necessarily turn to sort of mass solidarity and collective action. They often try and cope individually, sometimes try and exclude other people from the workforce based on their gender or their race or migrate. And these are individual responses rather than collective responses, and the right tends to do very well from moments like that. Uh, you know, it is, of course, possible for people to organize themselves during times of crisis or times of chaos, but there's nothing predetermined about how those will come out, and very, very often they come out well for the right. The lesson that we need to learn instead is Whoever goes into the crisis with more strength, with more organization, with more groundwork laid, tends to do better 
during a crisis. So really, if there's any sort of practical implication for the left, it's that people should think about taking organization very seriously. That was Sasha Lilly, co-author of the book Catastrophism, The Apocalyptic Politics of Collapse and Rebirth. She was speaking on Against the Grain Radio in 2012. Find out more at kpfa.org or Against the Grain Radio on Facebook. I'll put a link to that catastrophism program, broadcast November 12, 2012, in my own show blog, published every Wednesday at ecoshock.info. You're listening to Ecoshock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith with author, broadcaster, and teacher Eddie Yuen from the San Francisco Bay Area. Well, in the book Catastrophism, the Apocalyptic Politics of Collapse and Rebirth, uh, which is where we started, radio broadcaster Sasha Lilly asked if there is evidence that an economic downturn benefits the left. And what did she find? Yeah, as I mentioned you know, a little bit earlier, she found that the evidence is, in fact, not often the case, right? That is, and I think this has to do with, even more broadly, crisis often produces fear, insecurity and fear. And the politics of fear, we've concluded based on the research, tends to benefit the right more than the left. It tends to skew right. And this has to do with the asymmetry between right and left politics, right? That is, we think about this, you know, from the French Assembly and the Revolutionary Period. Oh, you hear these two sides and they sort of balance each other out and you have extremism of the left and extremism of the right. But in fact, they're actually quite different things, right? The, you know, the psychological profiles are quite different, as research has shown. And some of the dynamics of politicization are different. And you know, broadly speaking, on the left, you know, we're talking about a politics that is inclusive, a politics of empowering people, a politics of critical thought. I mean, that to me is a minimal definition of the left. Um, and you know, we could have some discussion of what that would include or exclude. But on the right, you have very deeply authoritarian tendencies in, much right, in many forms of right-wing politics. And authoritarian tendencies are often buttressed by fear, right? And you can see this in the pop psychology, talking about the rise of authoritarianism around the world, you know, in Europe now, and, and, and Trump. What are these people doing? They're preying on fear. This week, it's fear of terrorism. That's one of the major fears. But certainly economic anxieties. These kinds of fears, the right wing can really go to town with. And so when you're talking about the, the example of unemployment, well, it's very easy to scapegoat something, right? It's very easy to scapegoat foreigners. In terms of the historical examples that um, we talk about in the book, rather than addressing the capitalist system as such, you have a particular ethnic group stand in for it. So this was the expression from the 19th century, 20th century, a radical saying, anti-Semitism is the socialism of fools, right? That is, you often have a kind of anti, let's blame a particular group rather than talking about a system. And in Asia, this is often, let's blame the Chinese, right? Let's blame some ethnic group. Let's, an ethnic group which is seen as elite, or also people at the bottom. So you have right-wing populism punches down and punches up. So it's very much bashing the people at the bottom, immigrants, people that are defenseless, but also the sort of vague criticism of elites, which in the West has often meant anti-Semitism and could be other groups in other parts of the world. So you have this kind of politics, which often results from an economic crisis. And of course, can well-organized left forces speak to the crisis and actually begin to talk about the structural reasons why uh, unemployment is happening or why people need a job in the first place in order to sustain themselves. 
Of course. And at certain, at certain times, this is the case. But the key point here is that it can't always be assumed that a crisis will necessarily lead to the kinds of politics that I think people that care about humanity and the planet would like to see. Very often, the same crisis can be mobilized by forces that want to scapegoat, that want to come up with some fanciful crackpot theory, and that want to basically um, build their own power structure, which may in fact not be particularly challenging to the one that exists already. So, Eddie, tell us about the other authors in this book and maybe give us a bit of a peek into their viewpoints, if you can. So Sasha Lilly wrote specifically about, about the left and, and the ways in which this, uh, the thinking that the worse the better has some role in, in some left politics. And we all also sort of mentioned liberal catastrophism, but they're really addressing it too much. But it's the kind of thing that, again, we encounter the most, we certainly encounter it every four years in the U.S. And that's the version that you'd better vote for the Democrat because otherwise the Republicans will take over the Supreme Court and, you know, it's all going to be bad. And so you have to hold your nose and vote for the Democrat, who, of course, has endorsed all of the wars. Know, recent years, you know, signed on to the mass incarceration, the militarization of police, all of these things, right? So that's, I think, bundled into, I think, what Sasha's chapter is about, is just being attentive to the various uses of the invocation of catastrophe, which don't always work out maybe the way it's intended. James Davis, filmmaker from Ireland, wrote a chapter on specifically on the right-wing catastrophism. And really, again, I think the key point here is is fear, really the politics of fear and how, you know, it's very appealing. You can get people's attention with fear. And some of the stuff we're talking about is very scary. I think climate change is truly terrifying. But sort of going deeper into what are the kinds of responses to a politics of fear. And some of the examples from the, from the right are really quite engaging. I mean, if you can have some humorous distance from it, it's, you know, <laughs> it's a good read. But I mean, just to talk about some of the, the religious versions, there's millenarian versions of catastrophism, meaning a religious kind of end-of-the-world prophecy, which really gets people worked up. And then, of course, not surprisingly, there's some people that profit off of it. This goes all the way back to the 19th century. There was a guy named uh, Miller, a minister, who... Um, it was actually, he had a prophecy of the end of the world in the Midwest. It failed, and that was known as the Great Disappointment, because so many people had given up their farms and livelihoods and gone to the mountain waiting to be basically raptured up into heaven. In terms of those kinds of prophecies, we also have, um, some of them are benign. If people might remember a New Age version of this, the Harmonic Convergence, and it was unclear exactly what was going to happen, but it was sort of a benign kind of intervention. Just to talk about the religious kinds of catastrophes, there's an element of this you can see in other kinds of prophecies of, of catastrophe, which is something external to humanity is going to come in and sort things out. And I think that is a kind of impulse that we see with the appeal of catastrophism, broadly speaking, is it's too difficult to organize the people. It's too, it's too difficult to, you know, maybe go to where they're living, the neighborhoods or workplaces. But maybe if something external happens, some kind of shock that will wake up the masses. And I call this also the kind of the Paul Revere theory of waking people up. Just go around screaming enough and people will wake up and the scales will fall off the eyes and people will see. If the thing you're talking about is real, then there's some element that this could happen. But it's also, I think, it's a substitute for the kinds of organizing that's often more effective. And it also, again, to tie it into um, to James Davis's argument, it's a terrain that the right wing can really operate in very well because they love that politics of fear. That's a sweet spot for them. For those of us who are trying to envision a different kind of society based on solidarity, mutual aid, compassion, you know, fear is 
insufficient. Or fear can actually be something which maybe, yeah, maybe wakes people up a little bit, but you need to have something else as well. You need to build community. Finally, in the book, there is a chapter by David McNally, um, just a profound uh, political economist, on the specific politics of zombies and the zombie movies and video games and films and the subculture around zombies. And it's actually has, it's a historical piece on the relationship of the body to capitalism, expropriated labor, body snatching in the 19th century. And uh, yeah, I just recommend uh, people to read that. It's, it's not as specific about the politics of catastrophe as about the specific phenomenon of zombies. Yes, and people have had the Day of the Dead, and, and uh, in medieval days they dressed up with blood on themselves, so that's been a long-running theme as well. Now, look, it's been four years since the publication, maybe almost five, of Catastrophism. Have you had continued interest in the book, and what are people saying? Yeah, very definitely. Um, and I think most people you know, that have read the book, it's really been um, a great dialogue and response that, that's come from it, particularly, I think, around the question of politicization. To me, that's really kind of, in a sense, what it's, uh, that it's about, is it, just getting you know, folks to think about what is it going to take to kind of wake people up and to get people mobilized to do the kinds of, of work that's going to be necessary. And if simply knowing about how bad things are is not sufficient, and given that there's catastrophic solutions to the catastrophe that are already on offer, how do we talk about the catastrophe and simultaneously say, and we don't need more of this? You know, in other words, we don't need more you know, climate capitalism. We don't need more neoliberalism. We don't need more fear-mongering. So that, I think, has been very helpful. But really what I would say is that in you know, the last four or five years, there has been, thankfully, a real resurgence in um, a, a new kind of climate activism and a new social movement generally, right? I mean, you know, we wrote the book, it was the Arab Spring was happening in Occupy, but you have so many movements now around the world, and especially you know, in North America, where things have been dormant for a very long time, and I'm really thinking about Black Lives Matter and the resurgent movements of people of color that have really changed the political climate in this country. And I don't think it's going to be a stretch for that movement, which I think has resilience, I think it's going to be around to link up with the environmental movements that have been regrouping around facing the climate catastrophe and the, and the calamity. So I really am actually quite optimistic now, and my earlier work has often you know, been about social movements. I think that we're in a very exciting time of movement building, of new kinds of solidarities and alliances that are going to emerge. Um, we're also, since Occupy, you've got to give a lot of credit to Occupy, we're in a movement where it's possible, once again, to talk about capitalism, you know, and the specificity of capitalism, not just using it as a swear word, but understanding, well, what is this thing called capitalism? How is it different from other systems? What are some of the logics of capitalism that are antagonistic to the environment, to any kind of, not only inequitable human society, but also to the very sustenance of life on Earth, Right. So my research really is on extinction and the biodiversity crisis, which is just absolutely shocking. You know, the sixth extinction, if you want to call it that, that's been put out. Uh, I think that this crisis has to be thought of in the context of all the other crises taking place on the planet. The, the endless wars that are spreading from the Middle East, thanks to both Democrats and Republicans really instigating this 15 years ago. The ongoing internal domestic repression of people of color in the United States and other rich countries, not even considering the global majorities. All of these things, I think, are converging in a way that is really going to make some generative dialogue possible. So that's the big change, I would say, out of this.
Well, you've talked about positive movements, and I'd like to add a, another one, which is kind of a sleeper, doesn't get much press, but it really is the food movement. It's people who are not only looking for local food, but they're looking for holistic food. And now they're looking for food that will promise to put some carbon back into the soil, which is a widespread and benign help for climate change if we can get the carbon back in the soil. And I've interviewed people about that. But I want to return to a point here, and, and I will talk to you more about capitalism because I know you've researched that and it's a very important subject. But first, we've had the Utah physicist Tim Garrett on Radio EcoShock twice, and Tim published two widely respected scientific papers showing a formula that directly related economic wealth to greenhouse gas emissions. And by his calculations, and he says this bluntly, only a complete collapse of the current economy could save us in time— from the worst climate disruption. You know, forget about solar panels and all those other things. They're not going to make it in time. Things have to fall apart to stop this gravy train of emissions hitting the atmosphere. How does that fit into our discussion today? Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't seen the paper, but I mean, certainly there have, you know, there is a lot of discussion of among scientists about, you know, what are the, you know, the tipping points, the thresholds, you know, how, how soon are things going to hit certain places? But I think, to me, the starting point is that the climate catastrophe is not someplace in the future. It's already here. And I like to sort of paraphrase a quote by William Gibson, um, which is the future is not the future. Uh, it's just not evenly distributed. And I think the climate crisis is already here. It's just not evenly distributed. And so what's taking place is the very countries that were the most vulnerable to climate crisis were also the countries and parts of the world that were the most adversely affected by the last 500 years of imperialism, settler colonialism, and in the 20th century, sort of the late Cold War kinds of wars and counterinsurgencies. I think Christian Parenti's book, Tropic of Chaos, is a terrific book on this. And since I mentioned Christian Parenti, I wanted to maybe a quote of his about catastrophism, which was, I think, talking about some catastrophic scenarios, especially the Malthusian ones that talk about the scarcity is the fundamental problem. Like, we're going to run out of this, that, or the other thing, is that this is sometimes a hope masquerading as a fear. Right. So in other words, when I think, you know, and again, on the right wing, it's very obvious when there's right wingers that talk about, you know, it's, it's collapse is coming and you might as well embrace it. Of course, this is clearly their hope. I mean, they, they want to be the ones to pick up the pieces. But I, I do feel there's a kind of impulse to kind of clean the slate, let's just like sort this out, go back to a simpler life, and that would be fine. And if, you, if you're writing from Vermont or Northern California or someplace where you have a small-scale local community, which is most often very homogenous as well, and of course it's based on indigenous land, but people forget that, then it often looks sort of viable. Like, yeah, let's just cut the ties and, you know, let's think about a watershed, and that's great. If only more people would see this, things this way. The problem is the world is, you know, one system. And for every Vermont, you know, and Northern California Valley, there are many more places that are living in the crisis as it's occurring right now. And if you look at what that collapse looks like, it's not a pretty thing. It doesn't fit the scenario, however, of the zombie movie, the, you know, the kind of like everybody fighting each other, depending on the level of destruction of the civil society by the last 500 years of, of empire and you know, counterinsurgency, it can be actually shocking how well people are holding together under these conditions. But nevertheless, when we see images of things going on in the Horn of Africa, droughts, famines, food scarcity, like Colombia now, indigenous people are starving, you know, in one area, so many places around the world, this is what the catastrophe looks like on the ground. And I certainly think from a political and moral perspective, it's not uh, an exemplary thing, I think, to advocate an extension of this. 
So, you know, how then would we begin to think about the transition? You know, what would this take? Certainly, the overconsumption of the global north is an important starting point. And in fact, the overconsumption is not making people happy. So that's another starting point. I mean, people in the global north, yeah, they're, you know, we have planned obsolescence. We have to replace our phones every year. You know, all this stuff that's being produced is destroying the environment and communities down the commodity chain at this point of production. And of course, at the point of final disposal, it's creating toxic landfills and incinerators elsewhere. So the entire chain of production and consumption has to be altered. And I actually think that this is something that, that's possible. I think enough people in the West that have all these commodities and you know, have these high consumption lifestyles are actually realizing it's not that satisfying. So again, I think the problem is with the producers, not the consumers. I think one of the points, actually didn't mention this earlier, that I make in the book is that part of the reason that people feel disempowered when talking about climate crisis is that the solutions that we're being told from the elites are often individual consumer-based solutions. And those are clearly unsatisfactory. And I think people are smart enough to see that in the global north and they basically reject those. And people say, you know what, I could use better batteries and light bulbs, but that's not going to you know, stop this crisis. And they're right. Now, I do think that people, you know, should personal consumption be more virtuous, you know, um, recycle and compost, but that's not going to solve the problem. I mean, for every pound of trash produced uh, in a household, 70 pounds of trash are created in the production of those commodities in a house in the global north. So really, you've got to deal with it in a much more systematic way. I think that the interesting thing about the technical side of it is that, you know, the renewable revolution, if you like, around wind, solar, uh, is actually further along than you might think. I mean, actually, you know, there actually are, I think, possibilities of a kind of, I don't want to say transition, I mean, I'm a little bit wary of that word, but certainly outside of a total collapse in the global north, which I think is very unlikely to happen, there are ways out, you know. But I guess the main take-home point, I would say, about the collapse is not evenly distributed. So when people are talking about collapse, it's like when they talk about overpopulation, it's always somebody else very often. You know? and, and, and I think if that argument holds, it's going to be ammunition to convince people to raise the drawbridge and to really double down on the emergent climate apartheid, which I think is already emerging. And we have to remember, too, that Canada, Greenland, you know, uh, these are areas which in the short term are actually going to be very prosperous as the ice sheets melt and as new lands emerge and new resources emerge, there's going to be a real boom in resource extraction, capitalism. There's going to be you know, huge continents are basically re-emerging, and they happen to be under the sovereign control of the very nations which you know, have, have benefited from, again, the last 500 years of unequal development. Now, Putin said that uh, climate change would be great for Russia, open up Siberia to more farming, and uh, a really great thing. So, look, I know you've researched and written extensively on capitalism and the anti-capitalist movements. I'm wondering, is climate change really a symptom where the disease is capitalism? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting way to frame it. I mean, one way to, you know, I think to, to look at it is we talk about the modern world and capitalism, you know, capitalist modernity. It's kind of redundant. It's sort of like saying racial capitalism, and we have to say that now. But it's also, in a certain sense, redundant. I mean, capitalism, the world we live in, the modern world, is a capitalist world. It is a world of racial hierarchies, of a particular form of patriarchy, of various kinds of inequalities. And, and it happened that way for a reason. It's not that there's been a different kind of modernity that hasn't been capitalist. And therefore, you could say, well, you know, this, this crisis that we're in, the environmental crisis, is it, you know, a cause or effect or, you know, of capitalism? 
it's deeply related, and I think that there's a lot of very interesting work uh, out there right now on the origins of capitalism in terms of environmental crisis. I think it's a very exciting time for environmental historiography. But I would just say maybe as one sort of piece to start with, that the whole, I'm talking about the last 500 years, it's all possible because of what happens when Columbus discovers this hemisphere. And, you know, accidentally, you know, whatever you want to say, you don't want to give it credit to the person. But the Columbian Exchange is kind of a big bang that makes everything possible because it brings in new crops into the world system that is a huge jumpstart to the caloric production, you know, of, of Eurasia and Africa. Um, it's new lands which are made available to the settlers that arrive there because of the diseases which wipe out much of the population. There's also genocide, which wipes out, further wipes out the population, and then the transference of millions of Africans to work this land. These are all phenomena that happen that make, that create the wealth that allows this entire expansion to be possible. It's not equal in any way. It's deeply unjust. And this accompanies, of course, the transitions that happen within Europe, the transition from the crisis of late feudalism to you know, the common story of the, of the advent of capitalism in Europe. And I think we're adding more to that story all the time. For example, the witch burnings, the destruction of female knowledge, and especially knowledge around health and reproduction that Sylvia Federici has documented in Caliban and the Witch, this incredible book on the witch brains, understanding that the femicide of hundreds of thousands of women in the late Middle Ages was not this last gasp of superstition, but was in fact part of this rationalized modernity, which insists upon creating enclosures against not only the lands of people to displace them so they have to work in a wage labor situation, but also against knowledges, enclosures of knowledge, which are continuing to this day. So my, my answer to this is historical. I mean, there is only one world system. There is one planet that we live on, and these are the things that have shaped it. Now, we can call this by many names. I mean, I think capitalism is a word that makes sense to people around the world in terms of understanding this modernity. But we do have to be you know, somewhat precise in talking about what this is, and not entirely moralistic either. I mean, I think sometimes we look at the great writings on the, on the history of capitalism, say Karl Marx, people think about, if you read the Communist Manifesto, he actually, at times it sounds almost celebratory, because he's so excited by the possibilities that it's creating. And of course, he's not nostalgic for pre-modern Europe, which you know he he rightfully saw is often a place of of injustice and, and and superstition and you know things that he was opposed to as well. I think now we have, especially coming from the indigenous movements, a more nuanced view of what was lost in the transition to capitalism, the involuntary transition of the peoples of the world to being part of this global world market and the commodification of everything, which is still going on. Which is still going on. And maybe that's a very important point to make about capitalism is that sometimes we think that, you know, the big things have already happened and all we're doing now is improving the next iPhone, you know, and that the wealth is going to come from this innovation. So that's the kind of rhetoric we get from Silicon Valley. It's all about these great men, their innovations and the new app. But in fact, if you look at where the wealth is really being generated, I mean, you know, in terms of firms, it's monopolies. I mean, Apple, Amazon, is, you know, same old story. It's not competition, it's monopoly. The competition is for the rest of us who have to compete with each other for housing and work. But, you know, you look at, like, where the wealth is being generated, it's from enclosures. It's, it's still the expropriation and appropriation of lands, of labor, of resources from peoples in the world who had not thought of these things as commodities. 
You know, in other words, you know, the global commons. So there's a lot more talk about in, the, in the economics about commons and what are commons. And, you know, this, you know, there's some debate around this, but I think one thing we you know, have to be clear about is the relation of those commons to capitalism, that capitalism is always interested in taking something which is not seen as sellable, it's not seen as a commodity, and transforming it into that. And this often takes the form of a violent expropriation, expulsion from the land of people. And as you say, this is happening to this day. What are some of the key battles taking place, you know, in India, around the dams, you know, in Belamonte Dam in Brazil, gold mines in Peru and Papua New Guinea? It's about displacing people from their lands so that multinational firms very often can come in and start um, extracting value in the form of mining, creating these dams, all these sorts of projects. And this is, in fact, the origin story of capitalism all over again. It hasn't stopped, right? This is continuing to this day. And this really is where a lot of the front lines of the battles are taking place. Well, look, we're starting to run low on time, but given the risk of real catastrophe, what would you tell students or voters anywhere in the world? Do you think there's a sane path out of the fix we're in or not? Yeah, I would have to say, I do think there's a a sane path. I certainly, um, (laughs) again, the starting point is it's not that this is something in the future, right? The status quo of many people in the world, and possibly the majority, is already intolerable. I, I have a quote in the book from a Jamaican dub poet, Linton Creasy Johnson, about the Cold War, and it says, the eagle and the bear are people living in fear of impending nuclear warfare, but strange to see, believe it or not, many people don't care whether it's imminent or not. And he goes on to say that this has been in 1982, that in the global north, people were worried about nuclear war. But in the global south, people were dying through the Cold War from the AK-47s and landmines that the United States and other countries were exporting to these countries. Most people in the global north didn't realize what had happened to Mozambique, Angola, Central America, all these countries through these horrific wars of the Cold War, except now, of course, when there's problems in Somalia, the Horn of Africa, or where there's gangs in Central America, then you'll get, oh, wow, there's a crisis there. It must be the culture. It's like, actually, you know, (laughs) the Cold War produced these horrors, um, but in the global north, people weren't really paying attention. They were worried about the sort of big nuclear war, which fortunately did not happen. I think it was unlikely to have happened. And the point here is that it's, it's uneven what's taking place. And so the crisis in the global south, whether it's crop failures, you know, the, the, the collapse of the food system, which has always been unequal since the days of the British and French empires, you know, creating economies in, in the colonies to, for exporting food while the people starved. This system is continuing to produce misery and suffering, and these, these problems will be exacerbated. Right? As far as the crisis in the global north, it's quite possible that people won't even necessarily notice it in some cases. I mean, the Great Depression, there were um, American elites who were living under mansions of the Hudson that didn't know there was a depression. Um, it's significant, I think, that, you know, that you know, the concentration of wealth is so high right now that, you know, the billionaires, they feel that they can escape whatever crisis is going to happen. You know, it's always funny to me that Dick Cheney and Rumsfeld have their mansions in the mountains amongst the many houses that they own, maybe just in case, right? I think it's Taos, New Mexico, and Wyoming. So they've got their bases covered, so to speak. And very rarely do things happen to them. And I think it's important to remember that as long as the global elites, you know, business and political elites, feel that they're exempt from the crisis, then it's not truly a global crisis. You know, until something happens to persuade them or to just overpower them, to make decisions based on the majority of, of the planet. So 
So I want to just conclude with the way I often begin these talks on the book, which is the problem with talking about the catastrophe, the environmental catastrophe, really comes to a simple word, which is we. Who is the we? And every time we say we, like we, humanity, are in this crisis around, you know, the planetary climate crisis, we're already sort of buying into a notion that humanity is united, and by implication that our leaders are making decisions with the interest of all humanity in mind. And sad to say, that's not the case. It hasn't been the case for 500 years. It hasn't been the case in the, even within the U.S. Um, historically, and it's certainly not the case now. Um, in fact, the world now is more polarized by wealth than it's maybe ever been. That is, the, the disparities between and within the rich nations and poor nations, and between even within a rich country like the U.S., are so profound that the elites simply, they don't, when they're saying we, they mean we as in General Motors, the business of America is business. Their we is not the same as the we for the global majorities. And I think that this is something that environmentalists and scientists, for all the right reasons, right, they often move to this we. They often talk about us and the planet because they're making this kind of move. They're thinking at the level of species, and this is admirable. But I think it's important also to have a historical perspective and say, you know, when that we is invoked, you really have to look at who's saying this. Who does that include? And most importantly, who does that exclude? And the people that have been excluded from that we which includes the notion of humanity itself, those are the people that I think are doing the most interesting work very often. And again, I want to go back to Standing Rock. You know, this is one of the poorest native sovereign nations in the country, and yet people are making a stand that's inspiring the world. And this is the case with um, many of these struggles on frontline communities around the planet. I think people have to get in where they fit in. People have to, that aren't in frontline communities can do a lot of work wherever they are. But I would certainly be wary and skeptical of plutocrats invoking humanity as they justify further neoliberal climate solutions on the grounds that the crisis is so dire that there's no time for debate and there's no alternative. We have been talking with the author, radio producer, and teacher Eddie Yuen. He's part of the Against the Grain radio show on KPFA Pacifica, and he's a contributor to the book Catastrophism, the Apocalyptic Politics of Collapse and Rebirth, published by PM Press. Eddie, I really admire your ability to marshal facts and history for us. Thank you so much for your contribution to Radio EcoShock listeners. It's been a great pleasure, Alex. I'm Alex Smith. Thank you for supporting Radio EcoShock and caring about our world. Please join me again next week as we search for answers about the extreme future and the damage now. 